Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 92, and uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to stop in um, and check out this episode. Um, I pray that maybe these other episodes have been an encouragement and a blessing. Um, If this is your first time, I pray that um, God speaks through this uh, and uses my heart and my voice to echo something deep within you and that he multiplies it. So today I want to talk about something that uh, I feel like the Lord opened up a reality to a scripture that I've never, I've never, well, I've really, to be honest, I've struggled with many times uh, because I don't quite understand it. And, um, and I think I have at least a perspective to propose to you. Um, I do believe that there is a understanding to be found inside of this scripture, and and so I, I will propose this um, as what, I, what I'm clinging to as I feel like the voice of the Lord has, has taught me a component, at least, in this story. So we are finding ourselves in the book of Mark and in chapter 11. Many of you will be familiar with the uh, particular passage and I would have imagined that some of you have also kind of scratched your head at this um, r- account. Um, but it's in, uh, we, we read it one place, Mark 11, and we'll start in verse 12. But it, it's involving Jesus and the fig tree that he curses. And it reads this. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now, before I keep going here, just because I can't resist the question, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now, he's Jesus, who is God in the flesh. He knows whether there's fruit on that tree without going over to it. Remember, he saw Nathanael under the fig tree before he even came to him. So we know this is not a matter of, hey, I think I'm going to go over to this fig tree because I'm hungry because I'm hoping there might be some figs on there. Yes, that's not what what is happening. Um, Yes, there is a... There is a, um, I don't know if dimension is the right word, uh, but there is no doubt or without doubt a human component to Jesus, fully man, fully God. And that in, in itself is quite a, a confounding reality. Um, but without going off the beaten path too far, um, if we begin to ask those questions as we make our way through Scripture, I believe that we can find ourselves in the middle of, of a revelation when we ask those questions and allow the Spirit to lead us and guide us. So 
I would I would encourage you right at the beginning there start asking those questions and and ask is there something else there that I'm meant to discover inside of the text um again I don't know if this is the right phrase but kind of reading between the lines we're not we're not adding to scripture but we're discovering realities truths within the text um not taking away not adding to but discovering things that are available to us by way of his word so ask yourself that question just at the forefront because um he went to find out if it had any fruit continuing on when he reached it he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs now mark's writing here adds that detail that we actually don't get in i believe it is matthew let me just um flip to it real quick i believe matthew 7 but um but that's that's actually an important component because um, we get a detail. Um, no, that's not it. Matthew, maybe 21. Let me t turn there real quick. Um, that's an important component because when, when you think about, well, if you're expecting, if you're expecting figs on a tree when it's time for figs to be there, well, then one could probably safely expect you would find something. But to expect fruit to be on a tree when it's not time for the fruit, that would be kind of, um, that would be an odd thing to expect, wouldn't you think? If I went out to an apple tree in the middle of winter, for me to expect apple trees on a tree in winter, that would be asking a lot of the tree, wouldn't you think? Um, now, as a tree develops and as the season approaches, there's this phase of getting closer to fruit, getting closer to um, the, the byproduct of what it produces. But when Mark adds that very important detail in a time that he says... Um, when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. So in Matthew 21, it was, we, we read that seeing a fig tree by the road, this is verse 19, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Now, Matthew doesn't give us that very important detail about it not being the time or the season for figs. So... That's the beauty and importance of reading the Gospels overlaid one another because there are, there are aspects that we can gain and gather that maybe we didn't get in, in a previous writing. So the, that's the beauty of reading them harmoniously and um, overlaid one another. It's almost like each Gospel writer draws a picture, although 
a partial picture, a picture in which their eyes see. But then you add another gospel writer's, uh, we'll say, picture, and you overlay it on one another, and you get this multidimensional layering that in the end produces a more clear picture of whatever it is we're looking at. And here it, it is the embodiment of Jesus um, and the ministry and the good news of what he brings with himself. So just kind of at the onset there, we, we can be thinking about those types of things as we make our way through the text. So back to Mark, we find that it's not the season for figs. And when Jesus goes to it, well, he finds nothing but leaves. Now, this is where it starts to get a little strange, at least for me. In verse 14 of Mark 11, Then he, Jesus, said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Hmm. And his disciples heard him say it. Okay, so after that point, it, it, there's a change in the scene. And Jesus goes, reaches Jerusalem and enters the temple courts. And this is where we find him actually driving out those who are buying and selling there. This is where he overturns the tables of the money changers, the benches of those who are selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through these temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now that's an important, that's an important phrase because I think really the whole setting is important in what I propose to you this is actually about. Um, because at least at least I've heard it taught and I've thought um, well rather not necessarily that I've heard it taught but um, I have heard something said that I that I do like about you know in 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 that level of presence that meaning the presence of Jesus, that fruit should have been present in in the one whose presence was there before it. It, w- it was like illegal for that fig tree not to have produced fruit because of who stood in front of it. Um, I'm butchering it, but it's to that degree. I like that. I think that's very insightful and... Um, and stimulating. So I like that. At the first glance of that, when Jesus says to him, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, it's very, very easy to to layer into that statement this type of um, maybe resentful outlook as though Jesus was somehow disappointed in that fig tree because there wasn't fruit on it. And so as a result of that, 
say, disappointment or frustration or what have you, whatever negative emotion. As a result of that, he says, well, I'll show you. You're cursed now and you'll never bear fruit. That's very easy to get to that place in, in our understanding of what's going on here. And, and in all reality, maybe that's where I've been for the longest time. And at the very least, I've, again, like I've said, scratched my head on this. And I don't, I don't grasp what's happening here. Why would he do this? It's almost kind of you feel bad for the fig tree because, you know, it's not, is it its fault that it didn't have figs on it in a time when there wasn't to be figs? It doesn't seem fair. That's kind of how some of my thought. And as I hit this verse, or this passage really, and I asked the Lord just straight, plainly, I don't understand this. Help me to understand it. And, and I believe he immediately started to share with me, and, and, I, and I'm going to give it to you. I propose to you, to consider that Jesus was not punishing the tree for not having figs, again, in a time when there was not figs. Rather, it's a prophetic act that Jesus carried out on this fig tree as a judgment against sin and unbelief. A second dimension in this act that he does is he also uses it as a as a faith tool builder. And we'll see that um, we'll revisit it back in Matthew 21 again. But so rather than a punishment for the tree for not having fruit, I'd rather, I'd rather see it as this prophetic act. So it's, it's this, a physical manifestation of a, of a prophesying moment against judgment, or rather as a judgment against sin and unbelief. Now, I'm going to put a couple things here in this and tie it to this. This is what gives me, I believe, um, a, a solid, a, a pretty solid place to stand on in Scripture to believe this to be true. First of all, though, when I think about the nature of Jesus... And as I, as I discover him in, in the Bible, in his word, to think that he is punishing the tree for not producing figs in a time when it was not for figs, that, would, that first of all, seems contrary to his nature. But that's not really my primary driver for why I believe this to be true. Um, in fact, it probably weighs the least of all of these. However, I think it is a valid thing to to say, this seems contrary to who you are. Help me to understand how this aligns. But we actually are going to go to Jeremiah. And um, he, he showed me this link in here, and I believe it to, to be deeply profound and uh, representative. So, uh, just a little context without getting too carried away. Before chapter 8 of Jeremiah, there's 
this uh, prophecy or decree that the Lord is giving through Jeremiah uh, to the people of Judah and all the evil that they have done, and God is declaring a thing to them um, and describing this valley of slaughter. And moving on into chapter 8, the Lord is declaring um, the bones of the kings and officials of Judah, the bones of priests and prophets, uh, the people of Jerusalem will be removed from their graves. They'll be exposed to the sun and moon, basically that they will just be laid out. Um, and it's especially in light of all of this false worship and idolatry. Um, and so in verse four is where I'm going to start reading and I'm going to read until verse 13. And I believe this gives us kind of a broader narrative of what is what the Lord's saying. And then verse 13 is really is what's going to tie us to this uh, text in, in Mark uh, that we was reading. So um, it says this in Jeremiah 8 verse 4, say to them, this is what the Lord says. So the Lord is telling Jeremiah to say this. And he says, when people fall down, do they not get up? When someone turns away, do they not return? Why then have these people turned away? Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit. They refuse to return. I have listened attentively, but they do not say what is right. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. Even the stork in the sky knows her appointed seasons, and the dove, the swift, and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you say we are wise? For we have the law of the Lord, when actually the lying pen of the scribes has handled it falsely. The wise will be put to shame, they will be dismayed and trapped since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men and their fields to new owners. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush, so they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when they are punished, says the Lord. Verse 13, I will take away their harvest declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Mm. I read that and I get cold chills. Um, that's a, that's a, the firm word. And, uh, as we read even 
texts like this from the Old Testament. Read it also from the lens of ourselves and what can we gather from that? What can, what can we gain from asking those types of questions as well? I, it's, it's sobering, I'll say that. But what I really want to draw your attention to there, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. When I, I can't help but see a connection here to this fig tree that Jesus curses and it withers. Now, we don't read that in Mark up front until later because after he goes and does what he does in the temple, he it says in verse 20, in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. So when we think about this, this passage here in Mark, we can't always make this linear path as we read in the Gospels, like one story leading into another, into another, into another, doesn't always, it's not always linear in, in, in regards to time. There can be, there could be some possibly backtracking. There, it, it would be as though you tell a story, and it's not always necessarily chronological. I believe the same would be true through some of the Gospels. Now, I do think that it warrants further investigation when you see through different gospel accounts a progression of normally from you see this story leading into this story which leads into this story now that bears more weight in terms of chronolo you know chronology there's the word um but even then it doesn't necessarily mean that it happened in that chronological order but in this scenario, I do want to, again, in my proposal to you, um, have you think on this progression. Now, in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, we see Jesus coming to Jerusalem as a king. He, is, he ends up riding on this colt and the people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He enters Jerusalem but at this point in time, it's already late, so he uh, went out to Bethany with his 12 disciples. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, this is when we find ourselves encountering this fig tree. From the fig tree, Jesus then goes into the temple, and what does he do? He purges it or clears it. So think of the progression. Jesus enters as a king. He encounters the fig tree, which is receives a curse and withering, and then he goes and clears the temple courts. So there's a king who decrees a or pronounces a curse over 
this object, which I propose to you, is rather a prophetic act of Jesus carrying out judgment against sin and unbelief. We think back to what we just read in Jeremiah chapter 8. What is happening, the Lord is declaring against his people, here is what's going to happen to you because I'm judging you because of sin and unbelief. And tied to that is no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What happened to the roots of that fig tree? They withered. So the tree withered from the roots. I believe the fig tree is a representation, a prophetic object in which Jesus declares is coming upon even the people of that day. Now, that what we read in Jeremiah 8, that a judgment happened to the people of that day. But Jesus is coming and tying this. I think he's tying it back to, to even Jeremiah and saying, remember what I said through the prophet Jeremiah. And in, in almost a way, I can see him this as a warning of remember what happened in that day. I want you to see this coming so that you'll, re, you'll turn from, from your ways of unbelief and sin and rejection and come unto me. And, and so I can even see a warning in there. But I think it is interesting and fascinating that the progression of the story in Mark goes as Jesus coming in as king a prophetic act occurring, a.k.a. fig tree, then followed up by a clearing of the temple courts. What does that show? I believe that shows or echoes this purifying. Um, Jesus said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, let's think of that for just one second. We see this language used, this den of robbers used again in Jeremiah, and actually as close as chapter 7. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that this what happens there when we read in Mark between the king arriving, Jesus, the proclamation of the prophecy in, in the object of the fig tree, and then him entering into the temple and him declaring a word and using a word, den of robbers. And this is all occurring within the same two chapters of Jeremiah. That to me just adds so much more, um, this prophetic fuel to the fire of why I believe this to be more than just, oh, uh, Jesus was upset that there was no figs, and so now that fig tree must pay. That's, that is a, absurd to think about even now. So when Jesus uses this language of 
You have made this place a den of robbers. So we find that phrase in Jeremiah 7. And without reading it all, um, this word comes to Jeremiah. And again, this is a proclamation. And I, I believe that the, this general kind of generalizing what's happening here is God addressing this false religion and identifying it as worthless. But if we, if we look at um, verse 9, God is saying over him to, uh, to the people, will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. The idea here is they think just because they come into the house of the Lord that they're safe from harm. And God is, t- God is saying here that all these people have, have their... The house of the Lord is supposed to be a place of, of honor and righteousness and holiness, but rather a den of robbers have... Robbers have made it this safe place, what they call a safe place, but we know we know better and God says better. No, this this is not a safe place for you. In fact, it's probably one of the most honest and even dangerous places that you could be um, is under the guise of uh, right religion. And so he calls it a den of robbers. But whew, what a terrifying, terrifying phrase that the Lord would follow with. But I have been watching. I, again, that gives me cold chills because that's something that we, we often neglect in our thinking. We go, we go about our day doing, doing life and we have these measures of choices that we must make that we, you know, there is, I don't know, there's money laying right here. No one's around. It's not accounted for. You have an opportunity to take it and perhaps no one knows. Or you have a coworker over here and... No one else is around, and you know they like to gossip about people, and you have an opportunity to to say some negative or nasty things about somebody, but perhaps no one would ever know, just you and them. Um, there is a person that you happen to walk by, and they're very different than you, and, and there's an opportunity for you to react to them in a negative, hurtful, harsh way that... Um, no one else would know. Um, you you could be driving on the road, and you have 
a person who might not be driving up to your standard. And, and as you aggressively pass them and gesture to them a certain thing that no one else would know. But, but, but here we see God is and has been watching. I think if we kept that in the forefront of our thinking on a daily basis, moment, moment by moment, thinking that He is watching. How many things would you participate in if, if even you, th- even if you paused what you would do in a normal day, and th- and would you do those things if if even your mother was watching? Would you do those things? How much more should we pause and reflect upon the things that we do on a daily basis, actions that we take, if we were to think the thought, God is watching? I don't, that's, that is convicting and sobering. And even here in this room, thinking about that is the just the fear of the Lord coming upon and and it's just sobering. And so I'd, I'd challenge us to think on that question just moment by moment, thinking and, and chewing on the fact that God is watching. And no, none, no, none of the most heinous things that we that we do go unnoticed, but also likewise, the good things that you do, the things that that no one will ever see, the the giving to those in need, the smile that that one person at your workplace needs, the conversation that this other person needs, these things that will never be seen or noticed by anyone. But God is watching. God is a spectator upon your life. That is a mind-blowing thing to consider. That The God who created all things, who spoke and everything came into being, and by His Word, by His Word, everything hangs into place. The orbit of the sun, the location of the stars, the waters receding and going back out. Everything hangs into its synchrony and its its faithful repetition. It all hangs into balance because of His Word. And, and the one who did all those things, the one who did all of those things, peers down from His enthroned highest place and he is watching us that is it's just mind blowing and so from the worst thing we can do to the greatest most Godlike thing that we can do. He's watching it all. And and I pray that that you, that me, that those who would become his 
through faith in Jesus, I pray that we would, we would all be pleasing to him and that we would, that we would weigh our moments in the moment and, and ask the question, is he pleased in what this is as he is watching? So, in closing, I, I hope that maybe this gives you a, a new perspective to, to think on in regards to the fig tree and its cursing and maybe the, maybe the depth or dimension that he is presenting. Um, and I pray that, that I'm faithful in, in his heart in the text and um, I just pray that he multiplies it. I pray that you're blessed and the, a hunger in you is multiplied. I pray that, that you, you see the beauty in, in the Bible, in, in his word. I pray that you see a beauty in it. And, and you, as you start to dig through, you start to discover these wonderful treasures that completely transform the way that you see your Bible reading. Um, so um, I thank you for taking the time, and we will see you next time. If God bless. It means I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a moment here with